Welcome to HRI's Next in Health podcast. This is Ben Isker, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute, and I'm here with my co-host, Trina Tadaros, who leads the HRI Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Great to be here, Ben. Well, Trina, we have a very special guest joining us today, PwC partner Claire Love, who will discuss the role of private equity in gene and cell therapy. Welcome, Claire. Thank you both. Very excited to be here. Well, Claire, when most people think of PE firms, private equity, what often comes to mind are business investors, right? Looking for the next big technology or some sort of consumer-based company. Gene and cell therapy, that seems like the realm of cutting-edge science. Is this typical for PE firms to explore these more science and innovation-driven businesses? You know, it's a great question. If you really think about private equity investors They, like other investors, are looking for attractive growth areas. And if you think about the overall pharma life sciences world, it's hard to find a faster growing area than stellar gene therapy. That said, what private equity investors are looking to invest in is not actually the therapies themselves, but really derivative opportunities to support those therapies. What I mean by that are whether it's a supply chain play of the CDMO or one of the supply chain inputs providers, that's really where most of my clients are thinking about placing their bets to get exposure to the fast growth of cell and gene therapy. So Claire, it sounds like we've got right now not a whole lot of cell and gene therapies, but the pipeline is pretty big. And I think in the next five years, I've seen estimates of 15 to 30 new cell and gene therapies anticipated to hit the market. And so what I'm wondering is, what does the market potential look like to a PE firm that's looking at these derivative businesses? And how does a PE firm know it has the right deal when maybe everyone else in its world are also looking at those same acquisition targets? It's a great question. Really, what it comes down to is which customers do these different businesses have exposure to, right? So everyone loves it. If you can find one of these businesses that has exposure, for example, to Zolgensma, which is one of the early gene therapy businesses that has tons of demand in the market. So if one of the assets has exposure to Zolgensma, that usually is a huge growth driver or similarly to a Kim Raya or a Yescarta. These are some of the really massive cell and gene therapy launches that are right now starting to commercialize and still have a lot of growth forward in them. You know, other investors are starting to look at businesses, though, which don't have those guys as the customers. They have really the next generation of gene therapies and cell therapies that are coming to market. And for those types of investments, what investors are banking on is that over the next five years, they can help to you know, win exciting new customers and logos. And then when they exit the business, they'll be exiting it not with you know, the 100% growth that some of the recent deals might be experiencing, but with a more moderated 20 to 30% growth, but then looking forward at that 100% CAGR on the back of the next wave of launches. So really, I think the key in diligencing these assets is understanding who the customers truly are and understanding kind of how sticky those relationships are. Claire, you mentioned that a lot of the PE firms, the the actual investment are in the businesses kind of surrounding this ecosystem. So the, Mm -hmm. the, the shipping, the manufacturing and all of that. Now, these are pretty complicated procedures, right? A lot of cold chain, a lot of things Absolutely. that need to be done just in time. So it's kind of like the most expensive pizza delivery system ever invented, right? I mean, what, what are these PE firms, what do they need to invest in to make this happen? 
Exactly. It's like the craziest pizza delivery system that's ever been developed. That's also constantly getting reinvented, right? Because I think the key is that many folks will describe this world as the wild west of supply chain and all the rest, because really, you know, we have processes to manufacture cell and gene therapies, but the reality is that those processes still are not that good, right? There's so much more improvement opportunity from a yield perspective. There are so many more opportunities to think more creatively about pricing from a commercialization perspective. There are so many different ways to think differently about do we manufacture these products at scale in centralized locations or near patient where they're being treated. There are so many different moving pieces across the supply chain. And so what I find most exciting is also it's not a question of just what is the technology today but also where are all of the opportunities to make it better and what are the next generation programs as well? Because there's just so much excitement going on. Well, I want to play off of that statement you just made about not just about the opportunities today, but what's going to be available tomorrow. And I guess what I'm wondering is if we look at something like the vaccines for Mm -hmm. the pandemic and the mRNA vaccines and new technology, anything that PE firms can learn from cell and gene therapy that you think might be transferable to other technologies? Completely. I think the mRNA vaccines are an excellent example, right? So there had actually been the cold chain that had been set up for cell and gene therapy is very much the cold chain logistics that's being leveraged for COVID vaccines on a completely different scale. So, I mean, the amount of investment that had to go into scaling those platforms up was massive. So there's lots of interesting synergies when you think about businesses that you know maybe make plasmids, right? And historically, they have supplied primarily into cell and gene therapies. And frankly, mRNA vaccines were a hypothetical thing that Moderna was inventing and became all of a sudden a new reality at a scale that frankly, no one had any idea was coming. But it really shows the power of science and the power of how much this innovation can really help our humanity at the end of the day. I mean, the thing that I, as a mom, always think about is if one of my children had had any of these horrible diseases that a gene therapy can actually cure, the impact that you can have on a child's life is just phenomenal, right? I mean, and so the more we can understand and invest into these areas, the more people we can fundamentally save and turn into having really high quality lives. And that's an amazing end opportunity. Claire, I think one of the pieces that I think both of you alluded to is that there's these huge opportunities. And then there's also, of course, risk. And I wonder, Mm -hmm. for PE firms looking at the risk profile, what are some of the risks that are unique to gene and cell therapy that PE firms are taking into account or should be taking into account? You know, it's interesting. So one of the big questions that folks, you know, used to ask us quite regularly was, you know, what is the risk of a potential scientific failure? And what would be the implications of that? And really, when people were asking about that question, they were thinking about, will the entire gene therapy class or the entire you know, gene-edited cell therapy class, will it collapse on the back of one bad trial? And the reason people ask that question is that actually happened a long time ago. And many people don't realize that that happened, but there was a death in a trial the Jesse Gaussinger death, and that literally caused the FDA to put a stop to all gene therapies. And it took a long time for the gene therapy field to really rebound from there. And what's super interesting now is that when we see events like even a death in a trial in cell and gene therapy, it doesn't bring an end to a trial. It's 
treated like it is in any other trial, frankly, that is in a different type of a biologic or a small molecule. And it's investigated and understood, but it doesn't bring the entire field to a halt. So I think what's been interesting is to see the regulators have a new appreciation for the power of the innovation and the power of the science and an understanding that one single event does not mean that an entire field needs to be brought down. It will mean that periodically a product will not be approved. And that is perfectly reasonable outcome, right? So there are no guarantees that products will make it to approval. But I think it's important as a key risk that folks have thought about over time. Folks are a lot more comfortable just with the underlying science and the relatively low likelihood of it actually occurring and what that impact to the overall market would be. I mean, beyond that, I think one of the other areas that folks think about a lot is just reimbursement, right? Because it's hard to imagine it is a high-priced therapy. I mean, obviously the price point varies depending upon what you're thinking of, but it can be a couple million dollars for a therapy right now. In many cases, and not all, but in many cases, there is a cost-benefit analysis you can do that will show the value of that therapy is still greater than the alternative. And the treatments that these children frequently would have otherwise undergone are pretty dramatic. So the cost-benefit is the key that folks are looking at. But I do think that understanding reimbursement and understanding truly what is the delta between the current standard of care and what the outcome would be if you were to actually receive one of these therapies is the key. Because what we expect to see is that not every gene therapy will have incredible payer coverage, right? We think that certain therapies will because of the value that they provide. But frankly, others are not going to. And others are going to struggle, especially in Europe, to get the reimbursement that they would otherwise have hoped for. And what it really comes down to is what is the value that it's creating in terms of the outcomes at the end of the day? Claire, I'm wondering on that point, I was actually on a call with an executive from a, a U.S. insurer. And he was saying, I brought up the gene and cell therapy, and he was kind of pushing back on the idea of uh, value-based price because he was saying, look, we might have the member for a few years. So even if we pay that price up front, we're not reaping the benefit of, we're helping the person, obviously. So that's of enormous value. But just in terms of the savings down the road, they won't be able to reap that benefit. What kinds of novel pricing strategies are being thought about to address this question of the insurers? Yeah, I think that is an awesome question and a conundrum that, frankly, this whole field is going to have to keep grappling with as we get ever more therapies to market. Because right now, there's so few that, frankly, most insurers you know, really don't want to be the difficult one and not actually provide coverage. Because frankly, these are pretty dire circumstances when most gene therapies are being deployed. I think going forward, though, the dynamic will change as you have more gene therapies truly brought to market. And the idea that folks are discussing, but frankly has not been implemented yet, is could you actually create a reinsurance model, right? So pool effectively all the insurer's risk into a centralized pool, potentially with you know the government or someone else acting as the ultimate reinsurer of that pool, and then spreading and effectively chunking up the payment like we do with the mortgage across the different payers. So that if the person moves from payer A to payer B over their lifetime, that payment stream effectively follows to smooth it out. So I think with time, we'll see some really innovative opportunities pop up. But that is definitely one of the unsorted challenges in this overall landscape. 
As you were speaking, Claire, it made me think that some of our listeners are health leaders on the pharma side, right? And I'm wondering what advice you would give them in terms of how to work with PE. They may need capital, right, for an investment. And so they need to work with these firms. What should they be doing? My biggest advice to pharma would be to collaborate. At the end of the day, you know, their pipelines are going to do the best if also the PE firms who have backed all of the CROs and CDMOs and supply chain players also are doing well and best supporting the pharma companies in those cell and gene therapies. So my biggest piece of advice would be to collaborate and be open to new and different structures of investments. We've seen some new companies that were even created through joint ventures between private equity and large pharma. So I think that's another great way for pharma leaders to really be thinking about how they can play alongside private equity investors. So Claire, we always end the podcast with guests with the same kind of question, sort of a forward-looking question. I feel like that's perfect because we've been talking, you've been talking about some of these more future, more innovative models. And so the question that we've been asking everyone is, what process, technology, or innovation that we know about now, today, will have the greatest impact on the health system of tomorrow? So what do you think? So I have to say, you know, despite all of us talking about cell and gene therapies throughout all of this, I have to say in the current world, mRNA vaccine. I mean, it is truly remarkable when we all sit back and think about what a year this has been. And frankly, it is these mRNA vaccines in particular that is bringing us all back out of our individual homes and back into some semblance of normalcy. And I think of what's going on in India and how heartbreaking it is. And I think the challenge is how do we bring that to scale, right? So how do we bring that technology to scale globally, also such that we can prevent the spread of the variants that are otherwise going to creep up? So I think the mRNA vaccines are the thing that gets me most excited and most optimistic about our future and our ability to deal with pandemics. But it is something where we still have so far to go because we've not yet scaled it to a level of being able to get those vaccines into everyone's hands. It's extraordinary to think that this is our first go round with mRNA vaccines and that in five, 10 years, where could we be? It's pretty amazing. So I would agree. I would agree as someone who recently went inside a restaurant for the first time in a year, thanks to my, my double shots of uh, one of the mRNA vaccines. So Claire, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts on gene therapy and mRNA vaccines and the future. And thanks so much for coming. Of course, a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Trina and Ben. And for more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.